Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org. This podcast is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the oldest and biggest Ukrainian media NGOs. What are the results of recent rounds of diplomatic talks around Ukraine and Russia? Is the West's approach correct and what can it do? Is Ukraine's approach correct and what can it do? We discuss these issues with experts from Chatham House, a famous London-based think tank, James Nixie, director of Russia Eurasia program at Chatham House, and Orisa Lutsevich, head and research fellow at Ukraine Forum of this program. But before we start, let me remind you that you can support Ukraine World and our Explaining Ukraine podcast at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can see the link in the description. James and Doriso, thanks so much for joining this podcast. It's good to be with Ukraine World. Thank you very much indeed, Volodya. Great to be here. So my first question would be, how would you estimate the results of recent rounds of diplomatic talks around Ukraine and Russia? We have seen Russia-US negotiations, Russia-NATO negotiations, Russia-OSCE, Blinken and Ukraine negotiations, negotiations Blinken and Lavrov. Uh, what, what do you make of it? Well, what I would say in, in essence is I'm afraid we're doing something which we promised we would never do, which is to have talks about Ukraine without Ukraine. And yes, of course, they were present in the OSCE talks, naturally. But at the end of the day, it's quite clear that Russia only regards the US as a serious interlocutor and the only, um, the only entity that it wants to negotiate with. And we seem to have fallen for that. Quite why we don't insist on different terms, both in terms of a format for people present and uh, the substance of the talks is almost beyond me. I mean, we can talk about that, but it, uh, it, it, it's, uh, it is quite extraordinary to me still that a list of ultimata have been presented to the West and we are negotiating those ultimata right now. Orisa, do you see uh, different attitudes to this ultimatum, as James says, in Europe, for example? We understand that there is a US uh, position very clear, UK position very clear, but not uh, not all the EU countries, for example, have the same position. Do you have this feeling? Well, I, I think uh, what I would like to say first is that, in a way, we are rewarding escalation that Russia created on Ukraine's border, threatening a full-fledged military invasion by uh, giving Russia great power status in negotiations. That is similar to what Russia did in April of last year when it amassed its troops and then had a one-to-one conversation with President Biden. So I think it's setting a wrong precedent in a way. And and, uh, obviously, uh, U.S. is a prime target of this Russian um, uh, efforts. um, And that is why a lot of it is directed towards um, United States. And here, I think Europe felt a bit um, uh, shy and upset in a way of, again, feeling a bit like Ukraine, where the fate of Europe was stopped over its own head. Um, That is, I think, where... uh, the, we can discuss the statement of Macron and, and other efforts to have a separate track uh, with Russia. But I do believe that, of course, U.S. position is much more solid and unified and Europe's position is, is much more fragile and needs uh, much more consensus building on what is at stake in terms of security for the European continent. James, com- coming back to what Arisa said about Europe. So I had an impression that Europe find itself, the European Union meaning, find itself in a, in a similar situation as Ukraine find itself. Suddenly there is a talk about Europe without Europe. Uh, do you see, do you have this feeling as well? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, the EU and Europe more broadly is pretty much out of this discussion right now, despite Josep Borrell's and maybe even the French foreign minister's insistence that it must not be. But they, these, are, these are dismissed out of hand uh, by, by the Russians. But that said, it does seem to me that we've been talking about European unity for you know, 20, 25 years now. Uh, and, and perhaps we shouldn't be, you know, in a, in a sense, as it is sort of an unachievable sort of quest or goal at the end of a rainbow or something, then, then perhaps it would be better to focus on those states which can actually do something. You and I were talking, Volodya, just before we came on air, I hope that's okay to say, but, you know, in, in fairness, the UK has managed to send um, around sort of certain German defences, if you like, um, objections, uh, anti-tank missiles to Ukraine. Um, and those strike me as being potentially very, very physically, very tangibly useful and helpful. And other countries uh, can and would do the same, you know, the Nordics and, and, and others in, in, in Eastern Europe potentially. Um, whereas, you know, we shouldn't we're never really, in all honesty, going to get the Italians and the Hungarians on side here. So to a certain extent, we shouldn't really try. Yes, we've got a broad agreement on sanctions, and that's very good. Excellent. Thank you, Hungary, Italy, Greece, etc. But really, it is we need to step up here because the Russians are asking us to step up effectively, then I think it's up to certain individual states who are a little bit more backbone, a little bit more spine, a little bit more understanding about what Russia really wants um, to provide a great deal more than has been done in the past. Uh, Volodymyr, if I might just may jump in, because I think this is an interesting uh, format that we kind of mixed where Europe was present at the table, was NATO. And it, it's ironic, but in a way, Putin's actions are proving the necessity of NATO to uh, its, its members, because it's thanks to this format of NATO that European member states were able to be at that table. And that is why you see this... Um, a security umbrella, collective alliance, uh, defensive alliance that comes so uh, uh, viable uh, at, at modern times. Coming back to these negotiations, it's clear that the West is not uh, not giving Russia what it wants. Russia didn't probably expect from the West to give it what it wants. What do you expect right now? Because we have seen, for example, that Lavrov Blinken meeting was quite short and probably didn't give any result. We're waiting for a written response from uh, from United States. Is there any ideas what what can be in this written response? I, I wish I knew. I mean, it's quite fascinating in and of itself that we've been asked to you know to submit our homework by you know close of play on Monday afternoon, and and we seem willing to do that. Um, you're right, though, Volodymyr, that actually we can't give away all the silverware and, and Anthony Blinken is, is more than sensible enough to understand this um, and, and is not willing to either. But that said, and I think perhaps what's the preset behind your question is, you know, what, what, is it, what is it that they are willing to negotiate? Is it exercises? Is it nuclear weapons? Is it, is it, is it, is it, is it um, forces stationed elsewhere. Not so much. We're not going to negotiate, negotiate a sphere of interest because partly because it's not within our sphere, of in, within our gift to do so. I'm sorry, but uh, so so of course when, when we, I think this is the issue, isn't it? It's, it's the eternal problem is, is we always we always worry, and I think we have reason. Anytime we any anytime as a summit or a, a a major high level meeting, you know what is it that we are going to almost unconsciously or or. Um, offer for Russians when, of course, we know full well that there have been no concessions um, between on, on the Russian side between Russia and the West really in the past in, in, the, in the past decade or so. 
Orisa, what can satisfy Russians? For example, if we imagine a, uh, that in a written response there is something like, uh, well, the word never is not applied, uh, so uh, there is nothing like Ukraine will never become a NATO member, but there is some formula like uh, uh, Ukraine will not become a NATO na- member in the near future, in the next 10 years, etc. Do you think such formulas will satisfy Russia? I mean, clearly Ukraine is one of Putin's geopolitical praise, but not the only. As we have seen in the list of those demands, it's uh, uh, Ukraine is there, but it's not just about Ukraine anymore. Uh, and it looks like from the words of Ryabkov, the deputy foreign minister of Russia, they will not let Americans to cherry pick on which kind of the track they are willing to negotiate or which not. So it's kind of, uh, it's it's now or never, it's all or leave it. So um, I, I think that uh, uh, new NATO member states on the eastern flank, Baltic states, Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, they were very clear uh, actually that, they, that, that NATO should stand firm. And we've seen today the decision of NATO to deploy more reinforcements in the Black Sea and also in the eastern flank of NATO. So uh, I see very little room for where Russia could be satisfied, specifically because they've uh, uh, fused all these issues in in one set of demands. And it seems like they are so far um, set on persisting on this track. On the one hand, of course, it's, it's, it's a little confusing, I suppose, because on the one hand, people think it's all about Ukraine when quite clearly... You know, Ukraine is not the limit of Vladimir Putin's ambition. He, and and, and you, you hear it from people like Kotlov Tolstoy, who, you know, head of the Russian delegation to the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, who's saying that, you know, we're looking to redraw our borders according to 1917 to go back that far. That would include Finland and, and Poland, by the way. Uh, but, but, but I think on the other hand, when we talk about this sort of, you know, wider implications, we sometimes forget that Ukraine is on the front line. And, and, and that the, you know, the, the first lives to be lost in this conflict will probably be Ukrainian ones inside Ukraine. So at the same time, we have to sort of somehow come to terms with the fact that there's a bigger picture, but we shouldn't lose sight of the Ukrainian picture as well. There is uh, some of the interpretation of the events is that Russia may not attack even Ukraine first, but it uh, it can attack directly one of the NATO countries, make a very, you know, small probably attack uh, just to to show that NATO countries are not protected by NATO and that Article 5 of Washington Treaty doesn't work. Do you think this, James, do you think this interpretation can make sense? Look, anything is possible when you're dealing with a, a non-rational actor scenario like, like, like Russia, I, I suppose. For what it is worth, I think we are dealing, I think Russia will ramp it up rather than go all in, full hog, um, right at the outset. I think it will continue to test the waters and prod away and see what it can get away with, which, as we all know, is an awful lot um, before we look at a sort of an incursion in, you know, through the Savalki Gap or in, into, into Narva in Estonia. I think, actually, it will start small and gradually ramp up the pressure up to and including some military incursions. But I just don't think, you know, they, 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 won't, they won't start at level five. They start, they start, they start. But of course, we, we've, we've all seen the troop build-ups and we know where they are and we know what can be done. And Ukraine is surrounded effectively right now. There are, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's the issue of the troops who are, you know, pretty near to Belarus. They can move down into Belarus. There's the forces in Transnistria. Um, there's everything that we see in the in the east as well. And so I, I think we shouldn't we shouldn't 
uh, lull ourselves into some false sense of security that this is all going to go away with a few cyber attacks. I think we'll, it's a lot more serious than that. But I, just it will, we will we will see this pressure get ramped up as the Russians are increasingly, and I have to say, as they should be, disappointed. Orisha, let's talk about Russia a little bit and uh, speculate maybe what are the real reasons for Russia's actions. Is it really confronting NATO or is it an attempt to restore Soviet Union? Because we understand that these two tracks can be, you know, parallel, but maybe something is pri- can be prioritized by Russians. For example, 2022 is an anniversary of the creation of the Soviet Union. Uh, can this be a symbolic date for Russians and can therefore 2022 become decisive? Russian imperial and Soviet history is very rich, so I'm sure Vladimir Putin can find himself some good anniversary for any kind of escalation. Uh, And and Vladimir, I think there could be a variety of um, factors contributing to this kind of unprecedented build-up and pressure and uh, quite bullish... um, Uh, demands towards the United States, NATO, and um, and mostly towards the United States and NATO. I mean, I'm sure James can spill a bit of more light on uh, uh, Russia's domestic um, drivers. And and I think there are some of them where where Russia is really becoming an autocratic, quite militaristic regime, where Putin's core support comes from the strong man and and uh, uh, Russia's expression of a military pride, uh, Putin hopes it will reflect well, you know, shine good light on his, um, on, on his uh, leadership. Uh, so domestically, there's consolidation. And of course, there is this certain um, desire to uh, perhaps uh, build a, a supranational project where Putin could have a legacy beyond just being the president of the Russian Federation. We see him consolidating control and influence over Kazakhstan. He is absorbing Belarus and and at least part of Ukraine, because who knows what kind of uh, uh, ambition he has, uh, where the part of Ukraine could be uh, joined into that in that project. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons he is pushing so much uh, on Ukraine. But I think internationally, uh, and Josep Borrell put it well, he wants to uh, push the strategic decoupling between the United States and Europe. And he feels there is a certain um, priority in White House where, uh, of course, China is the main strategic rival. And perhaps he calculated that it would be a good time in a way to try to... um, get um, what he wants fast and then try to reconcile with the United States alongside um, uh, alongside China. So I think there are many drivers and, and also I think um, in a way uh, time is not playing in Putin's favor in Ukraine. Putin is not achieving his goals in wrecking Ukraine through just a local simmering con- con- war in Donbass. So he decides to exert more pressure on Kyiv, and that is Ukraine dimension. James, something to add about uh, Russia's domestic reasons? Yeah, I mean, look, it's all in there, isn't it? There's, a, there's never a single factor for sure, and you can make the argument perfectly reasonably that uh, it's a distraction from Russia's terrible handling of covid uh, falling approval ratings, which are, you know, although it's approval, approval ratings as far as action on Ukraine concern, are concerned are, are somewhat higher, actually. Um, but but uh, and and just a, a general declining um, medium to long term situation for Russia, which which is becoming apparent now after 
after you know 22 years of, of Putin's rule, I suppose, that sort of um, decay and atrophy. But for what it is worth, I, I don't think it is entirely, I, don't, I really don't think it is that for the most part. I, I, I genuinely believe that uh, Vladimir Putin is a conservative ultra-nationalist who believes in Russia's um, historic uh, great destiny um, and that's for what it's worth. I, <laughs> this may sound crazy to you, but I actually think that's actually more important to him than the accumulation of wealth and, and even uh, the uh, staying in power uh, ad infinitum or as long as, his, as long as his body allows, if you like. So I, I, I think that it's more important for Vladimir Putin to achieve his uh, territorial, if you like, or in, goals of influence more than anything else to him. He, he genuinely believes what he says. And, and thank God that, you know, you, Volodya, and, 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 and so many of your countrymen and, and, and others with principle as well, um, you know, believe in what you believe in at least as much, if not more. Because without that, I think we'd, we'd all be in a much worse position. And it's, it's only that sort of opposition, if you like, from the pretty much all of the post-Soviet states, to be perfectly honest with you, Belarus, pretty much aside, but has, but has kept us in the in the situation that we're in. So I think, and, and this is the thing, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> Vladimir Putin's and Russia's ambitions are not going to go away. I mean, nothing can change that. No, no sanction can possibly alter his ambition for Ukraine and the post-Soviet space. Um, that, is a, that is going to have to come another time under a different leadership. So that's why you have to change their calculus because changing the ambition is not actually possible because of this overarching, overwhelming over belief in that, that Russia is something more, more than you know. It, it is not a normal state. It's more than it's more even than first among equals. It's more than premier into Paris. It's it's it, and and it's very difficult thing for people to get a, to understand, I suppose, because so many people believe that it's just a question of a, a regular negotiation or a. Um, uh, or, or a matter of a, almost a misunderstanding, maybe I'm belittling it a little too much. Whereas, in fact, you have a state with, with ambitions which are not just unacceptable, but quite quite outrageously grandiose, because we're not talking about an NATO expansion here. We're talking about the rollback of security guarantees to Eastern Europe. Orisa, you as a Ukrainian living in London, you watch the, the Western actors reacting. So uh, do you think that... Uh, Actually, this pressure, Russian pressure, consolidated the West, or you know, the idea that we have about the collective West. Obviously, we're talking about different, different countries, different approaches, and that uh, the West is not as consolidated as before. But do you still, do you still see uh, more consolidation? Because we we see, for example, the arms supply to Ukraine. We see increased support, and there are different uh, approaches to some positions, like German position or, or some other. But uh, anyway, do you see a consolidated approach right now? Well, if I compare it to 2014, I would say definitely yes, we have more consolidated approach. But every time with this consolidation, the moment we feel it's good enough, uh, it's it kind of a bit slipping, almost like it's a bicycle. You have to ride it all the time. You have to sustain it. You have to work with, uh, you know, with the with the governing uh, with the governing uh, elites. You have to explain it to media. You have to work with wider society because, you know, in in the representative democracies, people. 
people depend on public opinion. And it's important that uh, citizens in the UK and, and in Germany and France understand what is this all about, that it, it's not some far-reached, uh, far away in the uh, Russian uh, uh, Neverland, some kind of a conflict. Um, so I, I would say to your question, yes, there's more consolidation because there's a bit more clarity it has been eight years since, uh, you know, Russia's annexation of Crimea. And uh, thanks to also Ukrainian outreach efforts, Ukrainian civil society, diplomacy, parliamentary exchanges, that there is more understanding the kind of revanchist Russia is. Also, this time we have a different administration in the White House. Obama is more assertive than, um, uh, sorry, Biden is more assertive than Obama, where we have seen Obama very reluctant to provide serious military assistance to Ukraine. We see much more intelligence sharing with Ukraine and on Ukraine between the allies. We see quite um, active strategic communication, actually, uh, almost like strategic deterrence by strategic communication, where Thanks to this intelligence um, uh, evidence, the UK, US are exposing some of those Russian plans so that they cannot present it as the false flag operation. I think also um, the West kind of developed a bit of muscle on sanctions and how to work with them against Russia, because honestly, it was the shock at the beginning, right? to impose sanctions against the nuclear state that is also a permanent member of UN. So I would say, yes, it's better, but there are weak links that remain, and we do know that it's Germany. James, uh, do you see the collective West reaction probably as a, as a sign that maybe for the first time the West started talking with Russia from the position of force, at least from the position that, well, there are things that it, it is not going to negotiate. Or this interpretation is over-interpretation and the West is still kind of soft with regard to Russia? Yeah, confusingly, I suppose, those two things aren't mutually exclusive, even though it, it sounds a little bit like, like, they, like they are. Um, because clearly... Uh, as I said at the outset, there is some genuinely useful uh, military kit um, being imported into Ukraine, not least from the Brits, I have to say. Um, but at the same time, uh, we are most are saying that uh, there is no chance that troops, Western troops, uh, NATO troops are going to be put into harm's way. So there's still that sort of there's still a certain amount of mixed messaging, and perhaps you can argue charitably that there's a degree of useful strategic ambiguity there. Um, but at the same time, it seems quite clear that, uh, that as Arisia was pointing out at the end, that the, the Germans are, are going through a particularly difficult time um, with, a new, um, with a new leadership, with a foreign ministry, which is fairly weak in terms of actually setting... Uh, a little bit like Russia, I suppose, uh, setting foreign policy goals, and so there it is. It is an it is an, it is an uphill struggle whereby the individual member states will will ultimately continue to diverge on this and will do what they we see right and where where the pressure is on them most. And there's pressure in the UK to in, absolutely to ensure that there is more the, the, you know, more than the average, or you're pulling more than your, your fair share is done. But that's that's never going to work in, in, in so many European states. But that's not a disaster. It's not a disaster. I think it's actually more important for what it's worth to, to make sure that international organizations, including some of those which Russia is in, um, 
uh, including the PAC and the OSCE, maybe even the UN, but certainly the EU, that they uh, are able to sort of formulate an opinion. And if Josep Borrell and, uh, and others are, are, are so adamant uh, now, after perhaps an initial humiliation this time last year or so, uh, Borrell's visit, etc. If they're so adamant that Europe has to be a part of it, then they've got to, they've got to, they've got to play themselves into the game. They've got to deal themselves in because just the just the rhetoric and uh, is not enough. But if they could, if they were to come out with something that was a bit more substantial, then I think actually everybody, Russia included, would have a lot more respect for them. And Volodymyr, if I just may jump in, because I think we have to give a, a due price to EU, especially as we are recording it today, uh, on the 24th of January, that uh, EU today has approved a quite substantial emergency microfinancial assistance to support Ukraine, 1.2 billion euro. Uh, and, and this is something that is often overlooked, the economic price that Ukraine is paying uh, for uh, or just a threat of uh, military invasion with all the headlines uh, scaring investors away. Ukrainian sovereign uh, bonds uh, collapsed last week. So Ukraine needs, in addition to uh, uh, anti-tank missiles, uh, this buffer of economic assistance to support the budget to ensure that vulnerable populations can be supported in the spike of energy prices. And, and uh, resources are directed to build these capabilities of resistance in Ukraine. So EU has demonstrated that it can not just express concern, but act in what EU is good at. Orisa, what are other measures that the collective West, EU, NATO, United States, UK can do about this situation? Well, I think there is a... There is a suggestion that is often voiced by Kiev that diplomacy has to continue, that we're in this we're in this for a long haul, and it's important to keep the high-level conversation by explaining, you know, to Russians the, the positions where they're irreconcilable, where they could be negotiated, why you why Ukraine is key not just to European security but to global security, because Russians deep down uh, believe that it, you know that Ukraine is dearer to them than to the West, and in the end, the West will give up on Ukraine, and this is when they will get an open door to uh, to coerce Ukraine into their sphere of influence. So diplomacy, strategic messaging, and public messaging of that is very important. Uh, I think sanctions uh, package uh, is key because honestly, the first sanctions introduced after the annexation of Crimea, they were very weak. It was only after downing of MH17 that the, the EU woke up uh, that this is a real European war where civilians are tar uh, targeted as well. Um, and, and finally, I think Ukraine, as I said, needs much more support in building its own resistance. That means on the defense, sustaining these territorial um, defense units that Ukraine is now creating to mount civilian assistance if need be. That is assistance in cyber capabilities, especially protecting critical infrastructure and economic assistance. Perhaps in addition to these loans and grants, some political insurance or risk insurance that is would back up uh, Western investors present in Ukraine not to leave the country, but to provide them uh, assistance and, and uh, insurance in case of emergency so that we don't spike into economic panic in addition to security threats.
James, what do you think about the West's capabilities? One uh, clear thing is this discussion about SWIFT, for example, and uh, uh, at the beginning we see we have seen that uh, cutting out, cutting Russia from SWIFT is one of the measures. Then we have seen news that, well, it's not on the table, but what else can be can be done? Yeah, sure. There's, there's also the, the sanctioning of sovereign debt and uh, some some work on banks one can do, and and that's all that's all interesting and and it's fine. And I, 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 I'm willing to consider it, uh, but for what it's worth, you know, I don't think any of us are really up for, you know, hurting a housewife in Baronyezh who, who, who will obviously be told by Russian state media that it's all our fault. So I, I, for what it's worth, it's far more important to me that we target well-known individuals who are clearly linked to Putin or and or his inner circle. Um, and we, we take a lot more stringent measures on those. There are so many examples um, uh, of these, and we just seem unwilling or unable uh, or both to do anything about them. So I, I, think, I think the targeting of individuals, which ultimately has not been tried in a way in which sanctions has, is more important. I wouldn't underestimate it. At the end of the day, if we haven't tried it, how do we know whether it works or not? But there are obviously um, uh, counter lobbies there which are resisting this. Um, as well as uh, as well as legal issues, I suppose. Beyond the sanctions, um, I feel that as much as anything, the most useful thing we could possibly do is to draw our own red lines. You know, Russia does that plenty, and I think to start, to, to, it would be it would be quite useful um, if if all of the sort of the leading politicians involved um, could could just be a little bit clearer on the fact that there will be no accommodation with Russia on these most significant issues. Um, and I think, you know, Russia needs, these messages are not being sufficiently delivered. And it's all very well for the British Foreign Secretary to, you know, ride around on a tank in, in Estonia. And, and you know, and I, I do appreciate Ben Wallace's comments um, in the House of uh, Commons of the other day. And these things are important, but it would be, it, 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 we could do with more clarity still than in fact that, that actually, and I know they're saying that, 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 that Russia's actions will have consequences, and that's good. But they, they still lack a little bit of clarity on the fact that I suppose I suppose because they haven't come to terms still with the the true nature of what Russia's ambition is. They still, to a certain extent, feel that it is just about NATO expansion. We've been sold this this dummy, if you like. Whereas in fact, Russia's ambitions, and it sounds, of course, when you say it, of course, it sometimes sounds to people that it's russophobic or it sounds as if it is alarmist but the reality is is that russians are quite clear about what it is that they want um and it is not confined to ukraine and quite obviously uh the west again partly due to um a fear of its own shadow it's been burnt so many times before and and partly due to the fear of reprisals does not seem willing uh to talk about about Russia's wider ambitions, if you like. They only, they're pretty limited in their critique. Orisa, let's turn to Ukraine and talk about how Ukraine reacts to this situation, how Ukrainian authorities react. Uh, we have an impression that Ukrainian authorities, the Zelensky administration, has, you know, fluctuating position about all the situation. First, it was kind of a denial of the threat. Then it was uh, confirming of the threat. Then Zelensky recently, a couple of days ago, 
made a video message in, in which he tried to, you know, calm down the public, but uh, he did it in the way which did not really persuade the public. So what Ukraine can and should do at the moment? Yeah, well, let me just say first what I think Ukraine is doing right. And then I think that is Ukrainian leadership is trying to reassure um, uh, Ukrainian citizens uh, in the capacity of Ukrainian armed forces to defend Ukraine. If you follow, you know, the uh, news on social media and the channels of Ukrainian armed forces, various um, uh, special operation forces and even uh, uh, general staff, you see a lot of um, uh, material that shows Ukraine is standing ready to defend Ukraine. That is very important for because you remember 2014, Ukraine almost had no army and it was the volunteers, citizens who had to go to the front line to back as much as, as possible Russians off Ukrainian soil. Uh, I think it's uh, it's very important that territorial defense is being created a little too late. That should have been done straight after, you know, the uh, finishing of the anti-terrorist operation, as it was called in NATO in 2015, but better later than never. Uh, I think that is on the diplomatic front, it's very interesting how Ukraine is building these regional alliances. And there is a talk about UK, Poland, Ukraine alliance, about there's a Lublin triangle, there's bilateral um, uh, track with Turkey, for example. So I think it's important to diversify also for Ukraine to get assistance from any way it's possible. Now, you mentioned Zelensky's um, confusing messaging to Ukrainians about what is at stake. And I agree with you that um, it was, um, it was uh, you know, um, strange when Ukrainians were getting news, for example, about the positive attack, possible attack on Kharkiv from Zelensky's interview in Washington Post. That's not the way it should be. Uh, and Center for Strategic Communication and Information Security is doing, I think, personally, a poor job in preparing population to resist uh, under crisis, to know how to defend themselves and household. It's normal to, the more you understand the risks uh, in the, and when you present it in a, um, uh, you know, a small portion so that psychologically people are more resistant and more ex receptive. And one more thing where I think Zelensky adds oil to fire is of course fighting secondary enemy. And here I mean ex-president Poroshenko and, and that, is splitting society, polarizing society, giving Russian exactly the room to play. Uh, and, and, and I think that is a dangerous game. And uh, we, I would suggest that what Ukraine now needs is a, you know, a team of national unity where Zelensky would reach across to the opposition, to other political parties, and uh, really create a strong team to uh, lead Ukraine through these difficult times. There was an attempt on Saturday organized by Kyiv Security Forum to make a kind of a national dialogue uh, and it collected uh, basically all the pro-Western opposition. But my impression is that it would rather consolidate the opposition. And by the way, by persecuting Poroshenko, Zelensky seems to be consolidating the pro-Western opposition rather than weakening Mr. Poroshenko. But let me come to the to the last question. One of the one of the techniques that Russia can be can be using is, of course, destabilize Ukraine from within. We see certain information about a planned coup d'état. 
while first it came from Mr. Zelensky itself and it was, you know, met with uh, lots of mistrust. Now it came from UK, from United Kingdom and its intelligence saying that there are plans to bring Mr. Muraev and some uh, some people from the uh, Yanukovych entourage back to power. How do you, well, uh, not discussing really whether this, uh, or maybe you want to discuss whether this information can be trusted or not, but do you think that the risk of this internal plot or internal coup d'etat is possible? James, what do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, the first thing to say, I suppose, is it's actually a, a new direction for um, our intelligence services and the Americans, incidentally, to to, be, to, to reveal quite so much information. Um, and I think it's very hard for us uh, non-government, non-governmental analysts to really comment on the, on, the, on the veracity, but one has to take it seriously, of, of course, and um, and to examine these things. But but more than that, I think, just on, on the second part of your question, if you like, Volodya, then, what we saw in 2008 was the Russians um, antagonizing and provoking Mikhail Saakashvili, who, who finally snapped. And it does seem to me to be a possible parallel here, whereby Zelensky is, is, is probably fairly easily antagonized um, and, and provoked uh, as well. And he can't, his, his judgment is, as Arisia was saying, is, is perhaps lacking in certain areas. And the Russians won't do this without a trigger. They, they, they will they will need some form of excuse, no matter how spurious we think it is. The Russians will find some sort of reason if they're going to go in on a, a limited or, ma- or major a major basis. And I think it's a wor- it, one of my major worries is that the Ukrainians will provide him with an, uh, will provide him with that excuse. Not obviously a justification, God no, but 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 nonetheless there will be something that the that the Russians latch onto uh, and use um, in their justification for whatever it is they're going to do, no matter how hard it is. So that, that so yes, I think Ukraine's, if you like, sort of, if you like, structural immaturity in some respects, um, is, is obviously a worry here. And it's, a, which is a shame after some relative successes, after Zelensky has wisened up over time, um, after, after having sort of taken on certain, um, how do I put this, uh, certain sort of internal enemies uh, and succeeded. And there's been some, some considerable successes on the Ukrainian side. We obviously, as so often is the case, you know, we see two steps forward and one step back, at least, if not, if not more. Uh, and that is, that is that is very disturbing because, you, you know, if one thing one shouldn't do is is to hand extra weaponry or um, extra, yeah, extra, ultimately extra weaponry to, 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 to the enemy, to the opposing side. Orisa, how do you um, estimate the probability of this kind of internal destabilization, a coup d'etat, etc.? Because on the one hand, I would say that it is quite probable because Ukraine can be destabilized from within. There are different factions, there are different political parties. There is this animosity between different political flanks. But on the other hand, if, if this information about Muraev is true, well, uh, that means that Russians don't really have uh, people to uh, to be uh, to be the basis of their action because Muraev is not a top politician in Ukraine. What do you think? Well, I, I'd like to say that since December of last year, I was already circulated information even by Ukrainian government uh, itself saying of a possible scenario of internal destabilization. That was kind of a note where. Uh, there was public note saying this is Russia's plan. They they have uh, um, in their full spectrum warfare a variety of tools and 
internal destabilization using these cleavages, Volodymyr, that you are just saying, this uh, sudden polarization on a political uh, spectrum that exists in Ukraine, but also tiredness of war, uh, also, you know, high pressure uh, of rising utility prices amongst the population, certain dissatisfaction with Zelensky, all of this together, they could try and play. Uh, and, and we know that Putin uh, likes to uh, uh, read Lao Tzu uh, with his uh, art of war. And one of his uh, uh, quotes is, where there's chaos, there's opportunity. And, and I think this is what Russia does in Ukraine, on Ukraine's borders, around Ukraine, in Europe, creating this chaos and then tactically seeing what opportunity it provides. Uh, if it manages to destabilize Ukraine, it can open the door much easier to Russian invasion uh, or perhaps not even a military invasion, but some kind of influence operation that would create this chaos further. Uh, and, you know, here I think something is very important for U Western partners of Ukraine and Ukrainians to understand. Ukraine can win this and consolidate the West if Ukraine applies democratic standards, because that would give another... Um, argument for the West to say why we need to defend Ukraine, because it is a democracy. If Ukraine tries to slip into kind of um, non-democratic practices, prosecuting opposition, uh, having pressure on media, uh, seeing, you know, uh, using a, a, a rule of law for selective prosecution, that will give a bad aftertaste in the West and it will give um, power to those arguments saying that Ukraine is not really worth a fight that is, is, is not reforming. So we have to be very careful, especially these times, to stay on very strong track of democracy. Maybe this is the reason why Mr. Poroshenko was not arrested and is, is, is free and is free to also uh, consolidate his political positions. Thanks so much, dear colleagues, for this very interesting intellectual conversation. Uh, we had uh, uh, famous experts from Chatham House, James Nixie, director of Russia-Eurasia program at Chatham House, and Orisa Lutsevich, head and research fellow at Ukraine Forum at Russia-Eurasia program at Chatham House. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org. This podcast is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the oldest and biggest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support Ukraine World and our Explaining Ukraine podcast at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can see the link in the description. Subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Google Podcast, Apple or Patreon. Follow us on social networks, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube and stay with us.